Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we saw what happened when two young ambitious hotheads became kings of Denmark and Sweden. It took about three years for Erik XIV and Frederick II to maneuver themselves and their countries into open war with each other. Hostilities started in 1563, both at sea and on land. But it was the fighting on land that was the most consequential. While King Erik of Sweden was busy fighting his brother John, who had married without royal consent, King Frederick of Denmark sent an army to capture Elfsborg Castle, protecting Sweden's only port with a direct access to the North Sea. The castle fell within a few days, effectively trapping Sweden inside the Baltic Sea if the Dane chose to block the Ersund Strait to Swedish shipping. Which, of course, they did. King Eric led an attempt to capture an alternative port on the west coast, but after a disastrous attempt at taking the port city of Hamstad by storm, and an even more disastrous retreat back to Sweden that so much of the army and all of the baggage train and artillery lost, he had to go into winter quarter contemplating the gloomy situation for Sweden. To make matters worse, his sisters kept pestering him about pardoning their brother John and letting him out of prison at Gripsholm Castle. King Frederick, on the other hand, had every reason to feel good about himself and the position he was in. The war was going splendidly, and he had the Swedes exactly where he wanted them. Their army had proven to be basically useless, and he was able to strangle Sweden's foreign trade. The King of Denmark could smell victory in the air, and expected to celebrate his triumph as the King of the Restored Kalmar Union very soon. Today, we'll see how those predictions stood up to the test of reality. Episode 79, Seven Years of War. At the end of the last episode, it looked like the Danes were going to win easily after a brief war of a few months in the fall of 1563. But considering the title of today's episode, I guess you've already figured out that Frederick II won't get the cakewalk in the park that he expected. King Eric XIV of Sweden had one top priority for the upcoming campaign season, to regain a port in the west with independent access to the North Sea. Already in February, when the winter was still going strong, the Swedes attacked, not in one, but in two different locations, both in Norway, a part of King Frederick's realm that was relatively poorly defended compared to Denmark. One of the targets for the Swedish double attack was Bohus Castle, located only some 20 kilometers north of Elfsborg Castle, just across the border to Norway. On February 25th, the Swedes arrived with a force just shy of 5,000 men. They demanded that the Danish commander capitulate and hand over the castle, but when he refused, the attackers opened fire with the artillery. Bohus castle was a strong fortress, so the chances of success were never particularly high. But what eventually sealed the fate of this attack was that some disease or another started to spread in the Swedish camp, and when too many soldiers were either sick or dead, the Swedes had no choice than to give up and withdraw. At the same time as Bohus castle was attacked, another Swedish force crossed the border into Norway further north. The plan was to cut Norway in half and to gain a Swedish port on the Atlantic coast. Sweden and Norway are separated by a mountain range, making it virtually impossible to attack across the border with a 16th century army. But there is a gap 
east of Trondheim, where the mountains are lower and passable, giving people living east of the mountains relatively easy access to the Norwegian coastline. In the Middle Ages, two regions east of these mountains, Jämtland and Herjedalen, that today are Swedish, used to belong to Norway. These two regions east of the mountains had been invaded and captured by the Swedes already in the late months of 1563, and now Eric ordered his army to cross the mountains and push west, toward Trondheim and the ocean. The Danes had few soldiers here and no fortifications to speak of, so the 3,500 Swedish soldiers succeeded in reaching the coast already at the end of February, at the same time as the failed attack on Bohus castle began. King Eric planned to turn the Trendelag region into a Swedish province, and so he had ordered the commanders to treat the locals well. It was important to Eric to win Norwegian hearts and minds, so that they wouldn't object to becoming Swedish subjects. But there was a limit to how well Eric was willing to treat the Norwegians. If someone would make trouble, the king's instructions were crystal clear, and any sign of rebellion should be crushed with an iron fist. The army shouldn't hesitate to kill anyone, man or woman, and the survivors should be deported to other parts of Sweden, just like his father Gustav Vasa had deported rebellious peasants to Finland. The deported Norwegians should then be replaced by loyal Swedes from other parts of Erik's kingdom. But nothing came of Erik's plans to turn Trondheim into a Swedish port city. The invasion force was too small and spread out too thinly to control the region effectively. But there were still enough Swedes around to anger the Norwegians, though, because the invaders treated the locals harshly and demanded that they pay high taxes to Sweden. Predictably, this fermented resistance among the Norwegians, and when a small Danish force from Bergen, further south in Norway, showed up in the spring, some 3,500 local peasants joined the Danes in ejecting the Swedes. Soon, all the Norwegian lands west of the mountains were lost again, but the Swedes did keep Jämtland and Heyerdahlen east of the mountains, at least for the duration of the war. But, spoiler, when peace was restored, Eric had to hand these regions back to his cousin Frederick. But even though the spring of 1564 saw the Swedes retreating at both fronts in Norway, they hoped they had better luck at sea. Both sides had beefed up their fleets lately, but the Swedish one was still superior. Eric also had the largest ship. It was a brand new one called Mars, after the Roman god of war, and it was the biggest warship ever built in Scandinavia up until that point. This grandiose project had, of course, been King Eric's idea. Mars had four masts, three cannon decks, with at least 107 artillery pieces, and somewhere between 600 and 800 people on board. On May 18, 1564, Mars left Stockholm for the Ersund Strait. The mission was to break the Danish naval blockade. Mars was an impressive sight to behold, but the ship never reached Öresund. On May 30th, the Swedish fleet ran into a combined force of ships from Denmark and Lübeck, north of the island of Öland, not too far from Kalmar, just to give you a rough idea where we are in the Baltic Sea. Frederick had clearly sent his fleet to intercept the Swedes before they reached Danish home waters, and the Danes were ready to attack. The Swedes, whose ships were scattered, tried to keep the Danes at a distance, partly because they weren't prepared for battle, and partly because Mars had so many cannon that they would always hit something 
if all of them were firing at the gathered Danish fleet, even from a distance. The Danes focused their attacks on Mars, sending three of their own ships to board the Swedish behemoth. But the Swedes incapacitated the Danish flagship and sank a ship from Lübeck. When the Danish ships came too close, the Swedes tried to use long beams to push the Danes away. Intense fighting went on the whole day, but at dusk the wind died and the two fleets separated to lick their wounds and prepare for the next day. The following day, the Swedish fleet still hadn't managed to gather, and Mars was still isolated. This time, no fewer than five enemy ships attacked, and Mars was surrounded and bombarded from all sides. In the chaos and the thick smoke that covered the scene, Mars's rudder was destroyed, and one of the ships from Lübeck finally managed to come close enough to send some soldiers across to the Swedish ship. The Germans raised their flag on Mars, but their triumph was short-lived. Literally. A cannon exploded, perhaps from overheating, and that was soon followed by the gunpowder supply. Mars exploded into smithereens, and its main mast shot away like an arrow. Those who survived the massive explosion followed what was left of the ship to the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Hundreds of Swedes and Germans died. King Eric, true to form, was furious when he heard about the stinking of Mars, and he blamed the leadership of the fleet. But when the common people heard the news they drew a very different conclusion. A rumour soon started that some of the cannon on board Mars had been made from bronze, taken from all those church bells that Gustav Vasa had confiscated. To the Swedish peasants, the conclusion was obvious. The sinking of the warship was God's punishment for this sacrilege. After the failures in Norway and at sea, King Eric was desperate for victories. So he once again took personal command of his army, because that had turned out so great at Halmstad the previous year. The objective was to invade Blekinge south of Småland and east of Scania. Even though it was relatively poor and sparsely populated, it was a well-chosen target for several reasons. There were some excellent ports in Blekinge, and even though it was forbidden, many peasants from Småland preferred to trade with them instead of Kalmar. Not only was it closer for many of them, but salt was cheaper in Denmark than it was in Sweden. Capturing Blekinge would not only stop this illegal trade, but it would also protect Kalmar from a Danish attack. The Swedes crossed the border in August. They spent the first weeks pillaging, burning and robbing the local peasants. The goal was to devastate the countryside so thoroughly that the Danes would have trouble feeding off the land if they ever tried to direct an attack on Kalmar. By early September, the Swedish force approached Ronneby. It was a small town, but it enjoyed a booming trade in its port that was a serious competitor to Kalmar. Erik had decided to eliminate this competition, and on September 3rd, the Swedes demanded that the town surrender. Despite the fact that Ronneby was poorly defended and didn't even have a real wall, only a wooden palisade, the locals refused the Swedish demand. Maybe they had heard about the fiasco at Halmstad and thought the Swedes were incapable of taking any town by force. Or maybe they thought they'd be able to hold out until the Danish army would arrive and rescue them. But if they did, they were wrong, and their mistake would cost them dearly. The following morning, the Swedish army attacked, starting what would later become known as the Ronneby bloodbath. The wooden palisade was no match for the Swedes, and they quickly breached the defences and entered the town, where they proceeded to plunder and murder. Almost all men in town were killed, and many women and children as well. Only 
30 Swedish soldiers fell. Even people who tried to flee and hide in the surrounding countryside were hunted down and killed. At some point in the chaos and the fighting, a fire broke out. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was on purpose. But King Eric didn't mind, and he didn't do anything to stop the fire from spreading, almost completely destroying the town that had to be rebuilt from scratch after the war. Even though it would turn out to be too late for the unfortunate people of Ronneby, the Danish army did eventually arrive, and when they did so, the Swedes returned north again. As they withdrew back to Sweden, the retreating army burned and pillaged everything they hadn't destroyed already. Even though Blekinge hadn't been conquered, Erik spun the campaign as a success when he returned to Kalmar that fall. I doubt, though, that the peasants of Småland agreed, because they had to deal with the Danish army that had followed the Swedes across the border into Småland, where they proceeded to pillage for a while in retaliation for the desolation of Blekinge before they returned home to Denmark for the winter. When the fighting season of 1565 started, the main priority for the Swedes was still to gain an independent port on the west coast. Attacks were made at different places, both in Danish Halland and Norwegian Bohuslän, whereas the Danes crossed over into West Rogothia to burn and pillage. King Eric once again personally led the Swedish army into Halland, but after a spring and summer without any major successes, he left the army again and returned to Sweden. That was probably for the best, because soon after the king had left the command of the army to someone else, the Swedes finally managed to capture a port on the coast of Halland. On August 28th, Varberg, in the middle between Elfsborg Castle and Halmstad, fell to the Swedish army. A few days later, Varberg Castle also fell, meaning that the Swedes had finally managed to definitely pry open the window to the west, enabling direct trade without Danish interference. This was obviously great news, but Swedish trade from Varberg never really flourished because King Erik had decided on prices on Swedish goods that were so high so they were made rather unattractive on the European market. But at least the Swedish pirate fleet was stationed at Varberg to pester Danish and Lübeck ships in the North Sea. Losing Varberg was obviously a blow to Frederick's war plans, and he sent his army to recapture the town as soon as possible. The Danes made several attempts at taking the port back from the Swedes in the fall of 1565, but in October they had to give up and retreat south to Halland. The capture of Varberg was great news for the Swedes, and their success in 1565 continued at sea as well. The Swedish fleet was still much bigger than the Danish one. It had 48 ships. That actually made it the second largest fleet in Europe at the time. Not only was the Danish fleet smaller, they even struggled to get their warships out of their harbours because they didn't have enough manpower to man the vessels. Eventually though, the Danish fleet did make it out to sea, but perhaps they should just have stayed in port. There were two major sea battles in 1565, one in June off the coast of Mecklenburg and one in July near the Danish island of Bornholm, southeast of Scania. At the first of these battles, the Danish commander of the fleet was mortally wounded and died on the way back to port. And at the second battle, the Swedes captured the Danish flagship, and the new commander of the fleet, who had enjoyed this elevated position for less than a month, was taken prisoner by the Swedes. These Danish debacles guaranteed Swedish dominance over the Baltic Sea at least for another season. Still, the Danes had at least one noteworthy success at the Battle of Bornholm. Danish soldiers managed to board the Swedish ship St. George, a 
and even though the Swedes succeeded in driving off most of the Danes, four seamen and eight soldiers not only stayed on board St. George, but they fought so ferociously that they forced all the Swedes to retreat under deck. Then the twelve Danes quickly nailed the door shut, trapping the Swedes inside, and then they took over the ship and steered it to Copenhagen. But apart from that one brave feat, 1565 had been a bleak year for the Danes. The Swedes had both managed to break the trade blockade and they controlled the Baltic Sea. The Danish fleet was in a bad shape, having lost two admirals in one year. The fortunes of the war had definitely turned, and now the Swedes had the upper hand. On paper, the Danish land army was stronger and shouldn't have had any trouble wiping the floor with the Swedes. The Danes employed professional mercenaries, whose training, experience and equipment were far superior to that of the Swedish army, largely made up of part-time peasant forces. That's all true, of course, but there are other problems with a mercenary army. It costs a lot of money, and if you don't pay the soldiers on time, they won't fight for you. And in 1566, Frederick II started to feel the consequences of this drawback of his professional forces. The Danish crown was running out of money, so the toll in the Öresund Strait was raised and new extra taxes were implemented to cover the ballooning cost of the war. The crown even confiscated money from foreign merchants who happened to find themselves on Danish soil when the king realized he desperately needed more cash. The Danish fleet was also still plagued by manpower shortages. Quite literally, because the plague had now popped up in Scandinavia again, causing people to hesitate to report for duty at plague-infested ports, and when they did, many fell ill. Since there weren't enough people to found in Denmark proper, King Frederick sent for sailors in Norway, a country with a lot of seafaring experience. But it turned out that Norwegians weren't any keener at exposing themselves to the plague than the Danes had been. So the result of the recruitment efforts in Frederick's other kingdom was disappointing. In his desperation, the king decided that no ship was allowed to leave any port in his realm until the Danish fleet had been fully manned. This wasn't a particularly popular measure, but it did the trick, and the required men were raised and sent to Copenhagen. In the end, though, it was only a partial success, because many of the men forced to join the fleet refused to board their assigned ships, and others deserted. As if all of that wasn't enough to keep King Frederick up at night, in addition, Denmark's ally in this war, Lübeck, was starting to show signs of war fatigue. Representatives from Lübeck demanded that King Frederick close the Öresund Strait completely to all ships that didn't come from Lübeck. They hoped this would give the, their city a monopoly on trade in the Baltic Sea, and therefore increase their revenues, making the war worthwhile for them. But Frederick wasn't going to agree to that, since the Öresund Toll was a cornerstone of the incomes of the Danish crown. This made the rulers of Lübeck even consider abandoning the war, and they sent out feelers to achieve a separate peace with Sweden. But King Erik presented them with such ridiculous demands to accept a peace agreement between Sweden and Lübeck that the Germans refused, and the potential to isolate Denmark slipped through Erik's fingers thanks to his unrealistic and high-handed diplomacy. To sum up, King Frederick of Denmark wasn't looking forward to the upcoming campaign season with quite the same enthusiasm as he had in past years. The Swedes, on the other hand, were out and about early this year. Already in January 1566, Swedish forces both made an incursion into Scania 
and attacked Bohus Castle, the Norwegian fortress just north of Elfsborg Castle. The Swedes had tried to take Bohus Castle back in 1564 and failed, but this time they had more success. They attacked in winter when the castle was still landlocked because of ice along the coast, which meant that no supplies or reinforcements could be brought to the besieged castle. The frozen ground also made it easier for the Swedes to transport their cannon, so unlike the situation at Halmstad, the artillery had been able to keep up with the army and could be deployed in the siege. Before dawn on March 26th, the Swedish command gave the signal to storm Bohus castle. The defenders managed to repel the attackers three times, but when the Swedes regrouped and attacked for a fourth time, they managed to take the so-called Red Tower and hoisted the Swedish flag as the symbol of their triumph. In that chaotic situation, a Danish soldier volunteered to enter a gunpowder deposit in the basement of the tower and set it on fire. He succeeded. The tower exploded, killing every single Swede who'd managed to enter the castle, as well as the Danish volunteer, of course. After that massive explosion, which had turned the captured tower into a pile of rubble, the Swedish attack lost momentum. They kept up the siege until April, but then the plague started to spread in their camp, so they had no choice but to withdraw. King Eric was, of course, furious and blamed a man called Nils Sture for the whole thing. He was condemned to death, but the sentence was commuted to ritual humiliation. The high-ranking nobleman was forced to enter Stockholm on a starved horse through a triumphal arch made of two trees tied together upside down. Beggars walked before him and a crown of hay and paper was shoved on his head. He was also given the traditional document with all the lands he'd been granted as a thank you for his services to the crown. The paper was blank. We'll return to King Eric's relationship with the Sture family next time. Meanwhile, the Danes limited their goals for this year's fighting to pillaging and burning across the border in Sweden, focusing again on Westrogothia. Everything that wasn't destroyed was stolen, down to church bells and baptismal fonts. The region was thoroughly desolated, not out of spite or in order to fulfill some sadistic urge to see civilians suffer. Instead, the burning of crops and villages had a defensive purpose. It was done to make sure that no Swedish army would be able to attack Denmark this way, because they wouldn't be able to find supplies for the army here. So basically the same reason the Swedish army had ravaged Blekinge earlier in the war. But to the Swedes it didn't matter that this wasn't personal, just business, or that they had done the exact same thing two years before. A Swedish army was sent to chase the Danes out of Sweden, and they did so by harassing the Danish forces, disrupting their supply lines and threatening to cut their retreat back to Denmark, leaving them isolated in enemy territory. The tactic was successful, and soon the Danes didn't have enough food. It didn't help that dysentery and the plague also spread among the troops. The Danish commanders realized they had to return to Denmark as soon as possible if they didn't want the situation to deteriorate further. They had two roads to choose from, one big, convenient and a bit obvious, which Danish scouts reported that the Swedes had blocked and defended heavily. The other was a narrow path through the woods. The Danes decided to take the second option. If you've been paying attention to previous episodes about wars in these parts, you know what happens when armies take narrow paths through the woods. On August 9th, the Danish army reached a narrow strait between two lakes. There used to be a bridge there, but the bridge had been torn down. And yes, I can hear some of you at home shouting, Turn back! Turn back, you fools! 
Unfortunately for them, the Danish soldiers did not turn back. The water wasn't too deep, but as the first professional soldiers tried to wade across, Swedish peasants started to shoot at them from the high ground surrounding the lakes. Soon enough, the Danish march turned into a disorderly flight. Most of the Danes did manage to make it back across the border to Denmark alive, but they left their whole baggage train behind. Stolen church bells, baptismal fonts, and all. Even though the land war wasn't going particularly well for either side, the Swedes continued to dominate at sea. But not necessarily thanks to their own achievements. On July 26, 1566, there was yet another naval battle off the coast of Öland, where the Swedish fleet fought a combined fleet from Denmark and Lübeck. The battle itself wasn't particularly noteworthy, but the Swedes technically won because the Danes sailed off after their commander had died in the fighting. Danish admirals just keep dying like flies in this war, don't they? Anyway, after the battle, the Lübeck commanders wanted to sail to the German city of Danzig, but the Danes insisted on nearby Visby on the Danish-controlled island of Gotland to give their dead commander a decent funeral. The Danish fleet anchored off Visby because the harbour in the city couldn't cope with the number and size of the Danish warships. The locals warned the crews that there was a storm coming and they had anchored far too close to the rocky beach. But these warnings were ignored. The night between July 27th and 28th was windy and several captains became nervous and asked permission to anchor further out, but their requests were denied. July 28th was the day of the funeral, and the new admiral wanted as many of the sailors and soldiers as possible to make an appearance to give his predecessor an impressive send-off. Besides, he thought the wind was letting up. Several of the German ships, who had their own chain of command, did move further out to sea, despite Danish protests. The following night, the storm returned with redoubled force, dark skies, winds, rain and hail. The ropes anchoring the Danish warships snapped and the vessels were pushed onto the rocks. The sailors fought desperately, but they could do nothing against the elements. From land, the locals saw the fleet destroyed, ship by ship crushed against the rocks and sunk. At dawn on July 29th, the storm had passed. The now calm waters were full of debris. At least 15 ships were destroyed in the storm. Only 1,500 soldiers and sailors survived. Somewhere between four and 7,000 had drowned. That's more dead in a single night than there were inhabitants in the city of Visby. When he heard about the annihilation of his fleet, King Frederick wanted to punish somebody. So after what no doubt must have been a thorough investigation, a handful of women were arrested for witchcraft. They were interrogated until they broke down and admitted to have created the catastrophic storm through black magic. They were burned at the stake for their alleged crimes. Since the Swedes hadn't pursued the retreating Danes, they'd more or less been spared the effects of the storm. Now they were undisputed masters of the Baltic Sea. The Danish blockade had been definitely broken and wine and salt and other necessities could once again be imported freely. The Danes didn't rebuild their fleet for the rest of the war. By now, King Frederick was in a tight spot. On land, his forces had taken Elfsborg Castle, that's true, but the Swedes had managed to compensate by capturing Varberg instead. And at sea, the result of the war was an unmitigated disaster as far as the Danes were concerned. Their fleet was devastated, and Frederick needed a lot of money both to rebuild the fleet 
and to raise new troops. To increase his income, the king decided to reform the payment method for shipping through the Ersen Strait. From now on, you'd have to declare the value of your cargo, and then the crown would have the choice to either demand that you pay the toll according to the declared value, or force you to sell the cargo for the declared value to the crown. And you weren't allowed to refuse to sell the cargo if the crown demanded it. The new system was a success at least for the Danish crown. The first year after this reform was implemented, the income from the Ersen toll was 132,500 taler. That was more than for the previous four years combined. Since the Ersen Strait was fast becoming such a key to Danish prosperity, Frederick II revamped the old fortress at Helsinor, originally constructed by Eric of Pomerania, who we introduced in episode 57. It was expanded into a proper Renaissance castle, dominating the Ersen Strait at its most narrow point. The castle, renamed Kronborg, was built both to impress and to intimidate all those who docked at Helsinor to pay the toll. Kronborg was so impressive, in fact, that William Shakespeare let the plot of one of his dramas take place there, a play called Hamlet that you may have heard of. In the spring of 1567, King Frederick had even more reason to be optimistic. News reached him that his cousin, King Eric of Sweden, had suffered some kind of mental breakdown and was currently completely out of commission. Since Eric was a real micromanager, his incapacitation meant that much of the Swedish state bureaucracy, not to mention the war effort, was more or less paralyzed. Even though the Danish army was in bad shape, they decided that this was too good an opportunity to pass up. It took a few months to get the army ready to go on the offensive, but in October, Danish forces crossed into Sweden. They pushed north through Småland and Ostrogothia, burning, robbing and destroying everything in their path. But this time, the goal wasn't merely to devastate the Swedish border region. This time, the army was marching on Stockholm, hoping to cause the Swedish state to collapse, just like its king had Maybe, just maybe, the dream of re-establishing the Kalmar Union was within Frederick's grasp. But even though the Danish army managed to reach further into Sweden than they had since the Swedish War of Independence in the 1520s, they fell short of the goal of capturing Stockholm. By November, the Danes decided it would be best to turn around and return home before winter set in. The Swedes tried to cut off their return path, but ultimately they failed. 1568 was a relatively calm year in terms of the war, even though there was plenty of drama elsewhere, more of which we will cover in a later episode. The war could even have ended that year, because in November the two sides met to try to negotiate a peace agreement. But in the end, the Swedes rejected the draft agreement, and in 1569 the war was reignited. The Danes may have been disappointed that the war hadn't ended, but on the other hand, they managed to retake Varberg, thus once again depriving the Swedes of their only port with direct access to the North Sea. Even though the Swedes had some success in a campaign of plundering and destroying in Scania, they didn't manage to capture any other port on the west coast. Actually, nothing else of consequence happened for the rest of the war, and eventually both sides just ran out of steam. The conflict more or less just petered out because both armies were too exhausted to have the ability to continue. The war, after the fact known to history as the Northern Seven Years' War, eventually ended in 1570 with the Treaty of Stettin. In the treaty, King Frederick of Denmark had to renounce his claims on Sweden, 
but the Swedish crown not only had to renounce all claims to Danish lands, but also hand back actual land in the form of Jämtland and Herjedalen to Norway, and accept that Gotland would be a Danish island from now on. Sweden also had to turn over their Baltic possessions to the Holy Roman Emperor and pay $75,000 to Lübeck. But the thing that stung the most was the Danish demand for a whopping $150,000 to hand Elvsborg Castle back to the Swedes. Remember, that's even more than Frederick II made from the Öresund Toll. In order to pay the ransom of Elsborg Castle, the Swedish crown imposed new and heavy taxes on the population. Unburned towns had to pay one-twelfth of their property value to the crown, and landowning peasants one-tenth. If you lived in a town that had been burned down during the war, you only had to pay one-eighteenth. So at the end of the day, Denmark had basically won the war, even though the gains were nowhere close to what King Frederick had dreamed about in 1563 when the conflict started. He would reign for another 18 years, and his time on the throne, at least after the end of the Northern Seven Years' War, is remembered as a time of prosperity, a growing economy, and thriving culture. Frederick strived to improve life in Denmark, so he favoured various artists and scientists, not least the famous astronomer Tycho Brahe. He also wanted to clean up Danish cities, so he forbade people to let their pigs roam free in the streets. In an attempt to get rid of syphilis, he ordered that all prostitutes in Denmark be drowned. That plan was never implemented, though. Many noble families also thrived under Frederick II, and they built new mansions to show off their status and wealth. Many of these stately piles, combinations of defensive fortresses and elegant Renaissance castles, still dot the countryside in Denmark and Scania. In contrast to Frederick's stable and prosperous reign, his cousin Eric's time on the throne was far more shaky and much shorter. We'll talk more about that next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, or X as it's called these days, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.